Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Clay Nelly from the University of Missouri. Today I have the privilege of speaking with one of my partners, Dr. Stephen DeFroda. Dr. DeFroda was an author on a paper entitled Top 10 Pearls for Successful Hip Arthroscopy for Femoral Acetabular Impingement. Dr. DeFroda is an assistant professor at the University of Missouri and is happy to join me today. Steve, thanks for joining me. Yeah, Clay, thanks for having me. So, you know, as you mentioned, we wrote this paper, I actually wrote this paper uh, during my fellowship up at Rush. I, you know, I want to thank my co-authors as well as my mentors on this paper and in hip arthroscopy in general, Dr. Shane No and Dr. Jorge Chala. And, you know, in my training with those guys, and obviously they've trained a lot of fellows, a lot of residents, and we thought it'd be really helpful both for current fellows, future fellows, as well as those in the hip arthroscopy world, if we could put out a nice succinct technique paper really outlining what are some of the pearls and kind of the top 10 techniques um, that we really advocate for in hip arthroscopy. And this was something I, I really found to be interesting, especially as someone who's going to be a new hip arthroscopist going out into the world. How do I you know, get this very complex procedure down and communicate it well to my staff, to my trainees, and as well as just make it reproducible for myself. So this was a fun project to work on. Yeah, it's really, it's really terrific. And it's a nice, it's a nice succinct paper. And and obviously at Rush, you do a lot of hip arthroscopy, so you got terrific exposure there. And so let's jump right in with the individual techniques. There's 10 pearls and it's the top 10 list. And so we'll kind of go down them one by one and you can give kind of your pearls within each pearl. And so starting with number one, pearl number one is proper positioning. So take us through your standard positioning. Do you use a standard table? Do you prefer post-list arthroscopy? Do you use the pink pad? What do you prefer the most? Yeah, that's a great question. So I use the post-list system now. Our paper here, we discussed the usage of the, the pink pad, which is a kind of a little bit of a more affordable post-list uh, positioning system. If you don't have access to the striker guardian table, we're lucky to have it here at University of Missouri. So that's what I use. And just like in any surgery in orthopedics or surgery in general, you know, positioning is is everything. I mean, it's really a way you could lose the battle before you even begin the war, so to speak, if you don't have the patient positioned properly, if you can't get x-ray and you can't get access. So we kind of use the ASIS kind of as our surgical superficial landmark. And you line that up with the, the pink pad. There's a good image of it there. And then the guardian table, which I use now, there's actually a cutout in the frictionless pad that you want to position the patient's ASIS in line with. And then the other key pearl, if you're doing postless, is these systems all rely on high friction between the skin and the pad. So making sure there's no sheet or article of clothing or gown in between the patient and the bed is essential. So we'll move the patient over and then we'll kind of log roll them one way and then the other way to get the uh, sheet out from underneath the patient so there's full contact. And then just other little pearls, especially with positioning and getting your distraction. A lot of these systems now, you can do it with the patient completely flat. But if you're having difficulty, you can do a little bit of Trendelenburg to have gravity help you and uh, allowing the patient's weight to kind of counterbalance. We actually have found that the small petite female can sometimes be the most difficult one to distract on these postless systems because they don't have that weight to counteract them. So a little bit of Trendelenburg if you're having difficulty. And then uh, the last trick, which we kind of get a little bit talk, talk about with the portals, if you're having difficulty getting that traction and distraction that you would otherwise get with a, with a post system, is you can vent the capsule and kind of bring your spinal needle in and insufflate either air or fluid. And usually that'll distract the joint as well. And we have a good image of that in the paper to really gain uh, extra distraction as well if you're having difficulty. Do you ever bring floor in before prepping and draping to check the distraction or do you usually do that after prepping and draping? I initially would do it before just as being someone who was nervous. We used a lot of the post system in uh, fellowship and now I'm doing post list. So we would check the ability to distract. I would actually check the ability to distract before I would go and scrub. If, we, if I could get good distraction without venting the capsule, I would take it. If I was having difficulty for any reason now, I would insufflate with air, but now it's gotten so reproducible for us that we'll just scrub. And then if we're having any difficulty, we just know we need to insufflate and it's kind of off to the races. You know, so far with the postless system, we haven't had any difficulties. And this is a really nice 
thing too, especially if you're a new hip arthroscopist, or maybe you're just not as facile as the guys up at Rush or, you know, elsewhere across the country where they're doing hundreds of these, you don't have to worry as much about your traction time, as much about that perineal numbness. So it's just one less, you know, iatrogenic complication that you don't have to worry about as much, um, especially while you're kind of getting your hip arthroscopy practice going. Great tips. Pearl number two is perfect portals. Tell us through your thought process and establishing the portals and what constitutes perfect portals. Yeah. So portals, I mean, these are something that are really drilled into us, you know, when we're, we're learning this procedure and it's something that I, you know, continue to critique and harp on myself because the, the hip tends to be a lot different from the knee or the shoulder where you can always just kind of make another portal or you kind of have that 360 access almost where, where the hip, you really, you're farther away from the joint. You're using a 60 degree or 70 degree scope or it can be a little bit more challenging, obviously to triangulate. So really putting yourself, you know, in a proper orientation, both with regards to the femoral head and the acetabulum, as well as with regards to your, your portals, with regards to one another is going to keep you, you know, safe. It's going to have you help you with uh, safe trajectories to accessing the joint and it's going to protect, protect you from iatrogenic damage to the labrum and the femoral head. So once again, I kind of use that ASIS as a landmark. You don't want to stray medial to that, obviously, because of the neurovascular structures. And then I'll palpate the greater trope laterally. And uh, the rule of thumb I'll use is kind of three finger breaths distal and four finger breaths lateral uh, from the ASIS will kind of put me ballpark for my anterior lateral portal. Obviously, if a patient has excessively large or excessively small body habitus, you may need to to change that. And then I'll use my, you know, use your fluoro to use the uh, access needle. And you really want that to be kind of parallel with your cotyledonic fossa coming just superior to the femoral head. And I'll check that on fluoroscopy and then confirm with my nitinol wire. You can kind of get your cranial caudal trajectory based on your fluoro. And then when you introduce the nitinol wire, that should pass all the way to the floor of the uh, acetabulum. And if it doesn't for some reason, and it kind of comes out short and does not go all the way to the cotyledonic fossa, that tells you that you're either too anterior or too posterior and you need to change how steep your hand is. So you can get a lot of feedback just by the x-ray and then also just the subtle feel when you enter the capsule, you should feel a nice pop, which is something that really took a lot of the, a lot of these for me to really appreciate that pop that you get when you enter the capsule. And that's going to help you confirm in your, you know, with, with your tactile feel that you're not in the labrum. And then another kind of nice tip is you can also insufflate air at this aspect. And if you insufflate air and the needle rises uh, with the distraction of the joint, that might indicate to you as well that you're in the labrum. So that's something you want to be careful of when you start introducing larger joints. You don't want to create an obviously an iatrogenic tear or, you know, plow the labrum off. So once I kind of confirm all those things and confirm that I'm safe, then you can kind of introduce your, uh, your camera and everything, dilate up. I'll stay dry at this point and then look straight up for your modified mini anterior portal and kind of triangulate and you know, they talk about seeing this kind of nice red triangle, which you can kind of see in our video as you introduce your spinal needle from that trajectory. That portal usually will start about three finger breaths medial to your anterior lateral and about one or so distal. You kind of want that incision to start in line with where your other one ends. And then you kind of want the tip of your needle just to meet the tip of your uh, arthroscope um, radiographically. And then also when you're looking in the joint, you only want to make a capsulotomy, your horizontal capsulotomy, as big as you need it to be to do your work. And then once you're satisfied with that vision, uh, that portal both visually you know, looking from within the joint and, and uh, fluoroscopically, I'll establish that portal and then I'll bring my camera in and I'll actually check my first one, my, check my anterior lateral portal. And this is a good opportunity where if you did end up a little bit too anterior, too posterior, too close to the femoral head or too close to the acetabulum, you can kind of redo this portal now uh, safely on direct visualization and really um, get things perfect. And I feel like over, you know, throughout fellowship, throughout training, you know, working with uh, the guys at Rush and then with my own practice, I've really learned that it, it takes, it's worth it taking the extra few minutes early on to get those in the right position because it's really going to set you up for success when you go on instrument the labrum and then go to your, do your peripheral work on your cam lesion as well. So for anyone who's new to this procedure, you really take the time to, to master the, the portals and get things in the right place. It's only going to make things easier for you as you progress through the procedure. Absolutely. Portal placement is huge. 
Pearl number three is minimal interportal capsulotomy. So you're always doing a capsulotomy, and if so, how do you decide how large or how wide? Yeah, so I kind of alluded to it a little bit in the last pearl. So unless I'm just doing a simple debridement, you know, for arthritis or a loose body where I can access things without a capsulotomy and I can just do uh, periportal work, I will always make a capsulotomy if I'm going to do a labor repair, essentially, um, or a camera section. And I think the key there, obviously, we know the capsule is important and, you know, you can destabilize the hip by making too large of a capsulotomy. So the key is really only going where the pathology is. And I think that comes, first of all, understanding your indications and your preoperative imaging, and then also kind of understanding what you're seeing intraoperatively. And, you know, I'll really try to keep it to under two centimeters and really just, just in that one to three o'clock position for the horizontal limb of my capsulotomy. You'll see as you're looking at the, the hip and the anatomy, the capsule does tend to thin out a little bit posteriorly. So you never really want to stray out too posteriorly. And then same you don't want to go too medially or be getting into the psoas or, or anything like that while you're releasing things. So really keeping it small, you know, you can always make it bigger if you need to, but I try to keep my horizontal limb as, as small as possible to do my uh, central work. And then we'll talk about it later, but I do always close it at the end, which does minimize any iatrogenic instability or, you know, problems associated with that. And then once again, this is where it's key to make sure that your portals are in the right place, because as you bring in that very sharp blade to make your capsulotomy, you want to ensure that you're not going to create any uh, iatrogenic nicks in the cartilage or the femoral head um, or the acetabulum. So really making sure, once again, your portals are well-centered. And when you do do your capsulotomy, you want to be balanced, you know, keeping an acetabular side and a femoral side so that you do have good tissue to close at the end. So every step should really be keeping in mind that you, there are going to be further steps down in the procedure. And you know, if you mess with, you know, they're all kind of irreversible steps in this procedure where if you make your capsulotomy in a bad position, you might have difficulty not only with access, but later uh, closing the capsulotomy. So paying close attention to this is, is key as well. I think those are really great points, especially trying to initially keep it two centimeters or less in length, because then if you're slightly off one way or another, at least you, you know, you haven't probably, you haven't gone too far one way or the other. If you try to keep it as minimal as possible, at least at the start. Right. And the, you know, I'll kind of use little cues almost to, you know, for this step. I'll always start my capsulotomy. I'm viewing from the anterior lateral portal looking, sorry, I'm viewing from the modified anterior portal looking back at my anterior lateral portal. I'll make a very small balanced capsulotomy in between the femoral and acetabular side. And then I'll switch the camera back to that anterior lateral, flip my view 180, and you should see where that capsulotomy was begun. And then as long as you aim for right where you started your capsulotomy, you kind of connect your dots. And you almost have to fall out of the joint a little bit just to get those more superficial fibers of the capsule so you can you know, get your instruments you know, in and out clearly. Um, when you're doing that part, uh, the next steps in the procedure. That's great. Pearl number four, traction stitches. Do you always use traction stitches? Yes, I think traction stitches are a great addition to your visualization. You know, once again, it's going to help you see and help you expose the labrum while also protecting that acetabular side of your capsule. So what I'll kind of do even before I do that, kind of some merging of the Pearl three and four is I'll actually even check my capsulotomy. I'll bring a shaver in or a switching stick and make sure I can freely move it. And then once I can, I'll bring in the device to, which is the tagging device, which can be a little bit of a more large device. So it'll tell you pretty soon if you did not do a complete capsulotomy, because you may have difficulty passing this instrument into the joint. But um, once again, I'll kind of start where I finish off. So now I'll be still viewing anterior lateral. I'll bring my tagging device, which I use the striker uh, injector device in from the modified main anterior portal and tag the acetabular leaflet. And it's nice here. You want to really get a good healthy bite of tissue while sparing the labrum. And once you do that, you can really put traction on it outside the body by applying a snap um, and pushing pressure on the skin and snapping your sutures. And it really lifts the tissue nicely for you and really exposes the kind of capsular labral recess and allows you to then begin exposing your acetabular rim to do, uh, you know, preparation for your labor repair. And if there is a large pincer or uh, subspine that you need to take down, you can really get good access to this. So I'll start kind of on this half of the clock face. I'm doing my steps with the injector, tagging it, and then 
expose that recess with the shaver followed by the RF to really expose the uh, acetabular rim. And then I'll even burr and decorticate a little bit, you know, as is appropriate based on the patient's lateral center edge angle. So this is where you always want to pay attention to how much bone you need to remove. And then once I'm done all those steps, you can kind of switch everything, switch your view to the modified mid interior, and then repeat the same steps um, working from the anterior lateral. So then you tag, shave, RF, and then you're essentially prepared and ready to fix your labrum. Pearl number five is acetabuloplasty. How frequently do you think you're doing an acetabuloplasty in routine hip arthroscopy and what's primarily your working portal when doing so? Yeah, so I, you know, I alluded to this with the, the traction stitches step, because you know, it all does become very fluid. But by and large, I'll always at least decorticate the acetabular rim a little bit just to get, give a nice bleeding surface for the labrum. And then I'll always base it based off the lateral center edge angle. So if you have a patient who's in that more borderline dysplastic group, it's really just a dusting to get a bleeding surface. If it's someone who's a pincer, you know, you want to take it back to a little bit more reasonable, you know, in that 25 to 40 degree lateral center edge angle uh, range. So it's kind of a little bit custom made uh, for the patient. And this is where we'll talk about it a little bit later. You know, we have access now to such great preoperative uh, surgical planning uh, software with 3D CT scans and MRIs and things like that, where you can really kind of dial in um, your resection a little bit specific towards the patient. And then, you know, kind of as I alluded to earlier, I'll kind of do it in a fluid motion that progresses with the case. So I'll begin viewing from that anterior lateral portal do all my work through my modified mid interior that needs to be done, you know, from tagging all the way through shaving, doing the RF and, and using the burr to do my acetabuloplasty. And then once I kind of have maximized the work I can get done from that portal, I'll switch my view from the modified mid interior and then begin working from the anterior lateral. This is nice as well. Cause now, you know, while I'm working in the anterior lateral, that allows me to do my acetabuloplasty from around 130 ish down to 12. And then I'll kind of start my labor repair, which we'll get into next at that 12 o'clock position where I just kind of finished with my uh, acetabuloplasty, you know, working within that kind of 12 to three o'clock phase where we typically see our uh, labral tears. Yeah, I think that's definitely an efficient way to transition from the acetabuloplasty directly into the labral repair, working through that, that uh, interlateral portal. So that leads us to pearl number six, which is a balanced labral repair. So you, you alluded to it already, but where do you typically begin the labral repair and how do you come around? Yeah, so you know, at this point, we kind of have our, our camera in the modified mid interior portal. We're working, you know, from the anterior lateral portal, so it's very easy to then just kind of now proceed with our labor repair, and we can kind of start at about twelve o'clock, you know, assuming that's where the tear propagates to. Here, I really like to use fluoro both to confirm that you know twelve o'clock that I'm seeing through the scope is indeed twelve o'clock on fluoro, and then I also like to really make sure that I'm maintaining a safe trajectory with my anchors. Obviously, I'm going to visualize the cartilage when I'm drilling, but you can also usually get a really nice, uh, you know, X-ray at this point. An AP x-ray is usually very easy to get, especially at that 12 o'clock position. So depending on, you know, patient anatomy, there's a straight guide and a curved guide and both keep you very safe, you know, with regards to your trajectory. So that's where I'll kind of start, you know, I'll place my first anchor at that 12 o'clock or so position, use my small instrumentation uh, to pass, which we kind of talk, get into in, in the next pearl as well, which has our atraumatic repair and uh, kind of begin repairing from there. Good lead into the next pearl, pearl number seven, atraumatic labral repair. Do you find you're using smaller anchors or, or even potentially knotless anchors or different anchors than maybe previously or, or, or before? Or is it, how do you, how do you go about an atraumatic labral repair? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think anchor size is, is key. I mean, the anchors we use are 1.4 millimeters for this procedure. We do tend to tie knots. There are knotless anchors out there. The anchor footprint is a little bit larger than the 1.4 anchor, which is a you know, not tying. I haven't seen any literature that's shown a difference between knotless and, and not tied. And I was try, trained on the knotted anchors and have had great success. And I, I mean, I think what keeps bringing me back to this anchor specifically is just how small it is. It has such a small footprint. You can get as many of them as you need uh, in the area. And then the instruments also for passing your, the suture are very small. I mean, they make obviously larger 
instruments that we see, you know, elsewhere in the body in the shoulder, like the bird beak, which I had seen use, you know, prior to my, my fellowship training. And I just feel like that's a very large instrument. It can be a little bit more traumatic, but uh, some of the more nano instrumentation is very small. You know, you can get a single pass through your labrum with a small suture, small instrument, kind of retrieve and, and tie. And obviously, you know, do minimal to no damage to the to the labrum that you're repairing, which is really nice. And then having the the small anchors really allows you to get kind of all the way around the clock face. And then you can really get right on the face of the acetabulum between the kind of cartilage and bone and, and labrum with such a small footprint of the anchor to really get that uh, labrum to sit nicely. Yeah, I think that's key as well. Pearl number eight is osteochondroplasty. So how do you access the peripheral space or what are your what are your pearls and keys for getting into the peripheral space efficiently? Yes, I think this is probably one of the more challenging, you know, components, at least maybe for myself or maybe for new hip arthroscopists now transitioning from that central compartment to the peripheral compartment, which is a little bit, I think, different than the central compartment. So, you know, we proceeded with labor repair. We didn't talk about it much, but we kind of started working from that anterior lateral. I would switch back then to the camera to the anterior lateral to kind of complete the clock face repair from one to three, working through, I would make an accessory distal uh, anterior lateral and portal between my uh, anterior lateral and modified mid anterior complete the labor repair. And then, so now my camera would be in the anterior lateral uh, viewing portal. And this is where I kind of picked up a trick from one of my mentors, Dr. Chalo, where he would actually leave the camera in this compartment, leave the traction up for a minute or two and allow himself to kind of fall into the peripheral compartment with the traction still up. So if you do get disoriented, you kind of have that, uh, you know, home base to kind of go back to of the joint because it is still um, open. You're still under distraction. You still have your tagging stitches and it's very easy to kind of rebalance yourself but kind of fall out of the joint of the peripheral compartment. And then you can either work from the modified main interior or the dollar portal. It's, it seems that for whatever reason, when you're doing a right hip, it's easier to work from the dollar portal. When you're doing a left hip, it's easier to work from the, actually the anterior lateral portal, which I'll get into in a second for the debridement component, but you can bring an instrument in like a shaver and RF kind of define the space um, superficial to the capsule, kind of debride the uh, paracapsular fat. And then once you, feel comfortable with that. Once I kind of have a good sense of that, of that, I'll let the traction down, then move my camera to the modified mid interior portal and kind of view from that for the remainder of the case while I work, like I alluded to either from the DALA or the anterior lateral, defining that space and uh, preparing to do my camera section. So I think getting lost cannot be understated. And I think keeping the traction up for maybe just an extra minute or two, and that's where being postless adds to it as well, where you can just leave the traction up for an extra minute, find where you are, find your instruments, really orient yourself in the peripheral compartment and then you can be more efficient throughout the rest of the case. Yeah, I think that's very helpful as well. Pearl number nine is a proper camera section. So how do you decide what is proper? Do you use arthroscopy routinely or all the time or how do you assess a proper camera section? Yeah, so I think camera section is another component of the procedure which can be a little bit controversial and a little bit challenging, especially for newer hip arthroscopists. I think one thing that, that scared me. Shane No used to always tell me that you're not going to be happy with your camera section for at least a year or two in your practice, you know, as you keep getting, you know, a better and better handle on it. And I think we've done a good job of getting better at this. And I think one of the things that I utilize routinely is one of the companies, Stryker, allows us to get preoperative CT scans and they generate what's called a hip map. And we talk about it a little bit um, in the paper here where you can get the hip map and then intraoperatively, you can use something called the hip check. The hip map is like a 3D topographic map that you can get from the CT scan, similar to the 3D recons we're all used to seeing for the knee and the shoulder. And it kind of really shows you where is the you know elevation, quote unquote, the, the highest in your cam lesion and how much do you need to resect and where. And then you can kind of take that into the operating room view and you have your quote unquote hip check, which is a separate monitor that hooks up to the fluoro. 
and you take images in six different positions of, of uh, varying flexion, internal and external rotation, and it allows you to kind of project your 2D image almost in a three-dimensional manner, and it'll give you real-time alpha angular measurements and really show you how much do I need to resect, you know, if, if the knee is uh, in neutral with 40 degrees of flexion, how much if I'm 40 degrees of flexion, 40 degrees of external rotation. So it really allows you to dial in your resection. And for me, for myself, help me correlate what am I seeing arthroscopically with what am I seeing, you know, on fluoroscopy with what did I see in my preoperative plan. And I think that allows me to, you know, I determine how much of uh, the capsule to cut both of my horizontal capsulotomy. And then um, sometimes I'll do a T capsulotomy if it's a really large cam lesion. But for ones that I know that it's smaller, I'll just work through my horizontal a capsulotomy if I know that I'll have good access. So it, it once again kind of allows you to customize the procedure a little bit to the patient's anatomy and I think do less harm, cut less native tissue, resect native bone by really kind of directing you where to go, which I think can be very helpful and can I think can really help accelerate the learning curve yeah. um, with this procedure. Absolutely. I think that's uh, that's super helpful because especially early on, like you say, even using fluoroscopy, it's still easy to get fooled if the hips and a little bit more internal or external rotation. It's, yeah. it's very easy to get fooled even with the use of fluoroscopy to, to know exactly where you are. So I think that definitely helps that learning curve. Absolutely. The final pearl, pearl number 10 is capsular closure. So any specific pearls that you have or tips for how you do your capsular closure or you always close the capsule, I think, as you alluded to, but how do you, and if so, how do you specifically do it? Yeah. I mean, I think for myself, I, you know, was trained to always close the capsule. I mean, I think at this point we have enough, you know, literature out there that supports uh, routine capsular closure um, with regards to isogenic hip instability and just with regards to long-term outcomes um, with things such as conversion to total hip arthroplasty or need for revision surgery. And then, like you said, the question becomes, how do you, you know, how do you close the capsule? I mean, I think there's a number of techniques and I think it's a little bit surgeon preference, but there are really nice devices out there that you can utilize to close the capsule. Um, there's the injector device, which I kind of mentioned earlier, which I use to tag the capsule. This can be a really nice advice uh, device. It's kind of a self-capturing kind of device, almost similar to like a scorpion or other self-retrieval device that, you know, surgeons may be familiar with other sides of the body. The nice thing about that device is you can do it a little bit semi-blind where you don't really necessarily need to see both sides of the tissue in order to make your pass because it is a self-retrieval device. Another device, which uh, at least that striker manufacturers, once again, I use them for my hip arthroscopy is something called the slingshot, which is kind of like a, a passer that allows me to pierce the tissue on one side and then pierce the tissue on the other side and retrieve the tissue. This is a great instrument and is, it's very nimble and it's very quick. It has a small footprint. Um, once again, the quote unquote downside is this one gets more and more challenging to use as you close more and more of that capsule because you do need to be able to see both sides of the capsule when you make your pass. So it's very easy when you start closing. And then as you get to the last few stitches, it can be difficult. Um, one pearl that we found could be very helpful for this is your penultimate stitch, your second to last stitch, if you just pass that one and then shuttle it out a cannula that you're not working through and just kind of snap that before tying it and then pass your last stitch, tie that one and then go back and retrieve your second to last stitch, that'll allow you um, a little bit more flexibility and, and uh, ability to kind of see on both sides of the tissue. Because once you start your closure, once you get about three or four stitches in, it gets pretty tight pretty quickly. You know, I do a simple stitch. There are some surgeons out there that do a figure of eight, which can be, you know, a very nice and efficient way to close it. So I don't know that it matters per se what's your favorite technique is to close it. But I do think we know that closing it is important and uh, you should make an effort to close it, you know, if at all possible, but there's numerous techniques out there. And then at the end, I'll always probe it with a switching stick just to kind of assess for water tightness and assess that I'm uh, satisfied with the quality of the closure. Excellent. Those are excellent tips. Uh, Steve, thank you for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks again for having us, uh, having me. And uh, like I said, watch the video for anyone interested in uh, hip arthroscopy and you know, now everyone can do it. 
Dr. DeFroda's article, Top 10 Pearls for Successful Hip Arthroscopy for Femoral Acetabular Impingement, was recently published online in August 2021 in Arthroscopy Techniques. That concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. As always, please give us a five-star review on your podcast device, and please join us next time. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association of North America or the Arthroscopy Journal.